we've been in the middle of a series in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and meet me there. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll be in the last half of Ephesians chapter 3. But as you're turning there, um, I've got a question for you. Have you ever been in love? Amen. Ladies, you have my permission to smack your husband right now for not raising a loud and rowdy amen. Alright, my wife is in serving in our children's today. And by the way, that's right, she'll slap me later. Somebody has to. But uh, just great stuff, right? But, but I, I'm talking like middle school love. You know what I'm talking about? You know what the difference is? The difference is like, like passing notes, check yes or no. All right, it's time to it's confession time in the service. How many of you have ever passed a note? Only two of you. You guys are lying in church. The church is gathered, and you're telling fibs. But uh, no, we we kind of chuckle about that, right? We kind of chuckle about what love is. You know, like the the heart pounding infatuation of like can't get you out of my mind kind of love, right? And back when I was growing up, they had much better love songs than they do now. You know, like I'm talking like boys to men and stuff like that. Like, can I get a witness in the church? All right. But no, like we, we, we talk about love a lot, don't we? I mean, we even say stuff like, and maybe this is true, but we say stuff like, it is for Carl and I, I know that. But maybe you hear people say like, man, I just love pizza. Right? Like, Amen. Or I love barbecue. Or like we, we throw this around, right? And and I'm I'm not trying to be a fuddy duddy because I get it. Like I use these phrases too. Like uh, I'm, I've got my the sports teams that I like. I've got you know these different things. But when it comes to love, what is real love? I think we know it, but we get desensitized to it, don't we? I think that's a fair statement, right? Because everyone who's married in the room, and every one of you who are single but have ever gone on a date, or any of you that have grown up in a family, have I covered everybody yet? (laughs) Right? Like, every one of you who even has a dog or a cat, right? Like, I've I've had a dog for, uh, the same dog now for 12 years, and she's getting old, and I looked at her in the face today, and I was like, what is happening to you? <laughs> you look so old. <laughs> like her whole face is gray. I'm like, you used to be cute. I'm like, relax. Just got myself in trouble. The text. <laughs> but you you get what I'm saying, right? Like we we know love. We've experienced love. But I don't think any of the things that I just talked about really have anything to do with real love. Right? Like, what's the reason that we truly love someone? Like, what's the reason behind that? I do think, though, we know real love when we see it. The real sacrificial, covenantal kind of love that Jesus modeled for us, that the Scriptures teach us. We know it when we see it. You know... Uh, thinking about that vein, when, when I was growing up, when I was three years old, my mom had a tumor grow through her spinal cord. And to make a long story short, it put her in a wheelchair. And she's been a paraplegic, so she's been paralyzed 
no feeling, no use of her legs at all from the waist down. Just complete, you can imagine, even as a three-year-old, just like the shift of life. You know, I went from mom going grocery shopping to I went with mom so I could climb the shelves. So there was a silver lining in all that, that uh, I got to scale the shelves at uh, what was called Red Nurse, our local grocery store. And yet in that transition for our family for more than three decades, long time, I've watched my dad just love and serve and care for my mom. And so we know real love when we see it, don't we? Like if we were to have a conversation, you and I, over coffee, shameless plug, I'm free, um, and we were to talk about that, I think when, when you stop and you push the noise away and you think about what does it mean to really love somebody, what's the reasons behind really loving somebody? We know it when we see it. And so as we come to Ephesians chapter 3, and as we dive into it and read it now, that's where I want your mind and your heart to be, because Paul, the Apostle, right, we're talking about this letter that he wrote to the Ephesian people, and really to the whole surrounding area that Carl talked about in week 2, if you want to go back and listen to it and kind of get the scope, if you've missed some weeks. But what it's really cool about that circular letter that Paul wrote is that it's really, for us, it's Paul's letter to Tampa. And what he's going to say to us, what he's going to say to you about the love that God has for you and for His people should take us to that real love place. And maybe for some of us, for the first time, or maybe for another time, it needs to take us to that heart-pounding, the God of the universe, the God of Colossians chapter 1, where it says He is the, or John chapter 1, or any of these amazing places we read about who God is, that He's the image of the invisible God, come for you. That's good news. So, so this is the place we land right here. And today we pick up where we left last week on the second reason that Paul says he is serving people with reckless abandon. So here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen for you. But uh, follow along with me as I read, starting in... Ephesians 3, verse 14. Listen to what Scripture says. For this reason... Those are important. Paul's, Paul's drilling into something here and he's saying, for this reason, right? Like we talked about real love. There are reasons that drive you past infatuation and into real love. Here's what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. What a posture from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ 
may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And the church said, Amen. We go home right now. What a passage. True love then for Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's just a fancy way to say that God wrote the book by using human authors to do it. In that context, true love then for Paul begins in this interesting place in verse 14, doesn't it? Begins with our identity. Begins with our identity. That's the reason for Paul. Right? He says, for this reason, I'm going to pray. Right? He says, I bow the knees. He gets in that posture of surrender. It's for this reason, I bow, surrender, and pray. And the Ephesians needed this good news, okay? Because remember, as we've been studying and in the context of what they're doing, they, they were known around the world at the time for their worship of many gods, one of them being the goddess of fertility, Artemis. And so it's to those people that he's writing this, and he says, for this reason I bow, I surrender, and I pray, because every family in heaven and on earth is named by the Father. What, what you need to begin with right now, all of us, is this identity. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never given your life or bowed the knee and surrendered to Him, like this is the thing that you have been looking for in so many places. This is good news for us. Because it's your identity. It's your family. Our family identity is rooted in the identity of our Father. Paul's convinced that you won't know what to do until you know who you are. Better yet, whose you are. So look what happens here. Our Father has named every family and textually that is His. Every family that's His. And humanity on earth and angelic beings in heaven, all these things that are His and under Him have been named by Him. In other words, God has set your identity, not your work, not your earthly family, not your 
finances, not your situation in life. No circumstance has defined who you are. The Father has. The Greek word for family here is a Greek word called patria. Right? That's cool. Patria. But it's rooted and drawn from the Greek word for father, which is pater. So our father, pater, has named his family literally out of himself. We are literally a family from God. Our identity is rooted in, connected to, and established from the name of the Father. What an amazing thing. Our family identity is in our Father's identity. Chapter 1 tells us the story of being adopted into the family and declared saints. And our friend Zach taught us that, that when God wrote the book and He died on the cross so that you could be adopted into the family, that all you, all you had to do is He was going to hand it to you and you become a saint. We know you're not a saint. <laughs> you're aware that I'm not a saint. We're declared saints because of Jesus. What a powerful thing. So Paul affirms God's greatness, God's supremacy, God's authority as he brings into existence everything that is and exercises authority over everything that is. And I realize for some of us, or for you sitting here today, maybe that connotation of authority is a negative thing. But what is typically negative, authority becomes positive as we go through the rest of this text and we learn about the character of our Father who is in authority. It's powerful. Because here, here's the reality. What's our reason for being here today? Right? What's, our, what's the reason you're here? Like, if you just weren't going to check off the church box and you would look under it, what's the reason that you're here, the reality is, is that everybody worships. We're a worshiping people because we were created by God to be in fellowship with Him, in relationship, friendship, father-son, father-daughter relationship to the God of all creation. It's in you. It's the reason that we worship here, gathered together, and then we go have a week of worship individually and we gather corporately. It's a beautiful thing. It's powerful. So Paul's preaching this to us in his letter to the Ephesians, our end of chapter 3, as he prays that we would realize this handful of incredible strengths available to you and to me, to us, right? What's this text say? To all the saints together. That there are these strengths available for you today. They can make a difference in your life now. Some strengths that are being made available to us that aren't primarily about us. That's what makes them such good news, right? That it's not, not the thing that you have to muster up and conjure up and get done but simply because of who your father is and what family you've been adopted into, these things are just available to you if you'll just listen. But isn't that sometimes the hardest part? <laughs> Maybe you're 
not like me in that and you are a good listener. But if we'll listen, they are primarily strengths about God. They're things about the nature and truth and character and strength of God. And so by belonging to God, by being in the family, we have all the rights that come with being in His family. So in two parts, I want to look at four strengths that Paul prays for, if you're taking notes in your worship guide. Four strengths that Paul prays for, and then the reason you can pray, expecting that those things are actually going to happen in your life now. Make sense? Let's go. Number one. It'll be on the screen if you're taking notes. There's some blanks in your in your notes. Paul prays that our inner being, that's important, right? Our inner being would be strengthened with the power of God the Holy Spirit. Let's process that. This should be the heart-pounding, infatuating truth of God loving you, His child. Just sit with that for just a minute to think that the God of the universe looks down on you. And it's not primarily about you. It's the fact that He, all-powerful, all-knowing, a very busy God, (laughs) would have time to know the hairs on your head. Would have a plan working together for good because you love Him, according to Romans. Notice that text doesn't say that all things are good. But it does say that God's bigger and more powerful than the circumstances in your life. That He can take those things that are evil and use them for good. Because we're family. We love our Father. But what is my inner being? Right? What's the churchy phrase, my inner being? Where, where is that place? that this power of God can come into. What's the inner being? The inner being is the seat of your soul. It's the place inside of you that nobody else can see. It's down deep who God has created you to be. The real you. It's shalom, the whole person that you are. All the noise pushed aside, all the sin pushed aside, all the mistakes pushed aside, all the dreams and aspirations that are ours. It's really who you are. Paul prays that the regenerated you, the one that has Christ, the one that has the Holy Spirit, would be exercised with God's power so that the new you, right, the new you would speak louder to you than the old you. Because like Paul describes in Romans 7, they're both still there and they're waging war. Am I speaking to anybody today? Right? You're like, yeah, that sounds like my week. (laughs) Paul said it best in Romans, right? I do the thing I don't want to do. I don't do the thing that I want to do. But so help me God. Right? Romans chapter 8. Thank the Lord that it's there. What can separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Not even yourself. Praise God. Mm. You need to know on the inside, where nobody else gets to look, that God the Father loves you. 
and is for you and isn't there to ruin you, but to actually give life to your dead flesh, to the dead parts of your soul. How do we get to that place in our journey? How do we get there? Number two, Paul prays that Christ would. How do I get that in? That Christ would, by faith, dwell in our hearts. Dwell by faith. Friend, today, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. If you don't hear anything else today, I want you to know that the vision of life itself is Jesus. Right? Jesus said when He was on this earth, walking around, clothed in flesh, He said, apart from Me, you can do nothing. And He's not saying that you wouldn't walk around, talk, breathe, go to work, do that. But He's saying, you, apart from what the context there is, He's talking about a, a vine and branches and fruit. And He's saying, you can be a dead branch over on the ground and the branch is there, but it's dead. But plugged into the vine, receiving from the vine, abiding in is the word Jesus says, dwelling is the word Paul uses here, dwelling in God, in Jesus, is what will bring life to you. Because apart from Him, John 15, we can do nothing. And Colossians 1 tells us that in Jesus, all things hold together. All things hold together. He is the vision of life. So faith, what's faith then? Faith, according to the Bible, is the assurance of the things we can't see. We know what this is like too, just like we know real love when we see it. We, we know what truth is when we see it, if we're honest. Right? We can't see gravity, but we trust it. Right? Like if, if I decide that I don't believe in gravity and I'm going to dump this water on my head, you're going to go, that yeah, gravity's going to work anyway, buddy. You're going to be cold. Praise God. <laughs> Florida. We can't see it, but we trust it. We can't see the wind, but we feel it. We see the evidence of it. We see the trees blowing and the flags blowing and we feel the breeze blowing through our hair. We know it's there. And so it is with the Holy Spirit of God. While we cannot see Him, we know Him, we trust Him, and we see the evidence of Him all around us, don't we? We see the evidence of Him in male ministry getting thousands of dollars worth of goods that single moms need right up the street. That's not an accident. We see it in uh, students of ours thinking about Kenny's daughter going on a mission trip. One of our young adults. You know, and she needs help to get there so we can partner with her and give we see the goodness of God in those places. Right? And, and we, we go on and on and on, right? We, we do apartment life and we baptize one of our sisters who uh, had met the Lord and came and right here two weeks ago publicly gives her life to Jesus. This, this is where we see the Spirit at work. And we could go on and on. We know He's there. We see Him. And at that point, the most important part of that line in the Scripture text there is the word dwell. 
we can't listen listen 21st century American I'm speaking to myself we cannot expect to see God if we have no time to be with God you're probably as good as I am at scheduling him out of my life jobs three kids sports Netflix alright I'll stop I love you Disney Plus. <laughs> Listen, take this from me as your pastor and I love you and I, you know, scripture says I love myself. You have to eliminate some of the hurry if you want to hear and see God. It's not that we're lazy, right? Work is part of the creation even before the fall of man, before we sinned and broke the world. Before that, we were in the garden. Adam and Eve were in the garden to work the garden and to take uh, ownership over the animals. And we could go on and on. So, so it's not that God's saying don't work, but even God Himself, right, in the order of creation, creates for six days. And then He what? He rests. Did God need rest? Was He tired? Of course not. But there's a rhythm to life that God has given us. And the spiritual practices of Sabbath and rest are given, commanded even, for our good. The Creator knows His creation better than the creation knows itself, right? I love the paradox in Hebrews chapter 4. This will be on the screen for you. Uh, Here's what it says. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. Let us therefore, here's the paradox, strive to enter that rest. We're going to work hard to rest. If you're going to work hard, you should work hard to rest on the Sabbath. Why? What's the reason? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. A father corrects his kids because he loves them. And God created this yard and these fences for us to play in. So if you don't feel whole, if you're not experiencing the peace of God, the shalom, perhaps this is why. Because we want to hear from God, but we have no time for God. We must work hard to rest. And you you can do the research. Recent studies are showing that those who take time to rest actually become more productive. Number three, Paul prays that we would be rooted and established in love. So as we are given the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and we're dwelling in Christ, and Christ is dwelling in us by faith, and we're seeing Him active and alive, Paul prays that as that's happening, we need roots somewhere. Right? As the power of God comes and He begins to move and we begin to see clearly and Jesus is moving throughout the earth, as those things are happening, we have to be rooted somewhere. We have to be established in something. And Paul says we need those roots to go deeply into love. Because roots, what do roots do? They go deeply into the soil for nutrients. You ever looked at like a little tree and then tried to remove it? You're like, there's like roots under your house. They're like out in the out in the street. They're popping the sidewalk up, and you're like, what in the world? 
Right? All that stuff you can't see is what produces the thing that you can see. It's important that we go deeply like the roots of a tree into God's love. Because we can't do justice like we sung about unless we're deeply rooted in love. Because we're not God. We won't do justice right. We won't look at the issues of our culture right unless we are rooted in the love of God. Because when we go and look with Jesus at the culture, we need to look with Jesus, not just with our own shortfalls or our own bias or any of that. Right? We, we want to look the way Jesus looks. Because when we're rooted into the soil of God's love, we'll then feed from that and it will broom the fruit of love in your life and my life. We cannot simply command and structure love. It's not the way it works. It has to come from what? The inner being that's been renewed and changed and transformed by the love of God in your life. That's why when we get baptized or when we take the Lord's Supper here in a minute and we look at those elements... It goes to that deeper place, that inner place, where every week we come back and we say, I need to be in that place. This is not a ritual. It's a remembrance of the love of God shed for me through the blood of Jesus on the cross so that I could live. More of that, please. Every week. You don't need more of me. You need more of Him. Right? If I lost my voice and Carl wasn't here and something, you could come and gather and worship and share the Lord's Supper and be fed. Paul prays that we would be rooted in love. Rooted. Take hold. Established. So what does God's love look like? Right? What does it look like? What are we sinking our roots into with the love of God? I love this. Number four, Paul prays that we would begin to comprehend. That's a big, that's a good word. Comprehend the majesty of God's love. It's otherworldly. It's beyond us. It's transcendent. It's big. Right? Actually, Paul uses some good words here, doesn't he? The height and breadth, the length and the width, the depth of God's love. As we're strengthened by faith in God and given the power of God and our roots go deeper into the Father, Paul prays that we would start to realize the vast arena of God's love that we find ourselves in. That every good and perfect gift comes from the Father is what James tells us in his letter to the churches. Paul uses these terms not so that we would see him as unknowable, but that we would rather see him as an endless place to go and find love. He is very knowable. There is more of God and more of love to be seen and known and experienced. So we can both know and comprehend the love of God. You see, because some of you today will believe that you know that God is loving, but that you don't deserve it. 
And the good news of the gospel is that none of us deserve it, but we all get it. He's at work. Going forward, we can trust that in every step, whether hard or easy, whether difficult or easy, or whatever it is for you, whatever circumstance you're in, that in that, in every step, God is at work. He's strengthening you. He's strengthening me. He's, As the text says, He's strengthening His whole church, all the saints, all of us, to go and make a difference in others' lives. To be on mission with Jesus. To look with Him and be active in bringing His kingdom on earth. So as we begin to grasp and comprehend the vast places of the love of God as Cam and I like to call it in our marriage relationship, we have a love tank. And as you begin to go and dwell with the Spirit of God, with Christ, with Jesus, He'll begin to fill that tank up to overflowing. As we fill up in Christ's love, we begin to overflow with Christ's love. We don't just manufacture it. Think of it like a balloon, right? If you blow a balloon up with your air, it's going to sink. It's going to do nothing unless you physically bat it along, right? But what if you fill it with helium? It takes on a life of its own, right? What you fill yourself with matters because one is dead and one is alive. Fill it with the love of Christ. Can I encourage you today to stop striving in your own flesh? If you've never bowed the knee to Jesus, today can be the day that you would say yes to the call of God. That you would say yes to the truth and strength of the Holy Spirit. Can I encourage you, if you do know Him, to stop long enough to be in His presence and to enjoy Him and be fully known by Him And that maybe, just maybe, even in our context, busyness isn't the badge He chose for us to wear. Jesus was always on the move. But think about it. While being on the move and while doing things, He walked. He could could have done it some other ways. But He walked. I mean, even when His best friend Lazarus was dying, he, He walked. He stopped a few places and healed some other people. And when he got to his friends, they were like, what What, are you, what were you doing? If you'd have been here two days ago, he'd be alive. But in that strange place of God's love, he said, Lazarus is just sleeping. <laughs> They're like, no, I'm pretty sure he's dead. He smells. We wrapped him. He's dead. But what is dead in you and I can be made alive by the Spirit of God, can it not? That's the Gospel. You today, if you feel like your life is empty, that there is no hope, I want you to know that in Jesus, there is great hope. That when He went to the cross 2,000 years ago, He died for His family. So that you could be adopted into his family and be given this identity that we've been talking about and be rooted and established in love so that you could then go and look with Jesus at the world in a completely different way. It's shalom. It's wholeness. It's peace with God. 
So then verse 20 and 21, and I want to close with this. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's the best part of the whole deal. Is that we can pray for those things with the expectation that God will show up. Why? This is the last thing in your notes. When God's power is at work in God's people, God receives glory. What a joy that God's power would come and be at work in God's people, you and I, and that because of it, He would receive great glory. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us He chooses to use the weak things of the world, that's you and me, to bring Himself glory. What a powerful thing. So, so let me, before we jump and take communion together, let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions. Alright? What's the best thing you've ever asked God for? What's the best thing you've ever asked Him for? Healing or health? A job? A spouse? What's the best thing you've asked Him for? Let me, let me ask a follow-up question to that. Let's keep going. Right now, as you sit here right now, what's the best thing you can think of? Right? Because what does that text say? That once I'm rooted and established in love, whatever the best thing I can think of, God is so much bigger than that. He's so much more capable than that. Right? What, what are you thinking of? World peace? God's bigger than that. And He's going to do that, by the way. Revival? God's bigger than that. He can do that. He has done that. I believe He's doing it again. Paul's telling us that all of those things are smaller than our God. Our God is big. Reminds me of a kid's song, right? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Right? Like sometimes it's the simple faith of a child. The overwhelming love of God is yours today if you'll listen if you'll listen